It's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Gina Mangieri. Gina Mangieri is KHON's investigative reporter, where she covers everything from the high cost of rail and the mistreatment of fishermen in Hawaii's longliner fleet. She has worked in print and broadcast journalism as a reporter and editor in New York, London, Chicago, and Washington, D.C. Please give a warm welcome to Ms. Gina Mangieri. Thank you. A pleasure to be with you all and to be with our distinguished panel. Let's start with ladies first. Barbara Ankersmith is the president of research at Anthology Marketing Group, well known in Hawaii, of course, for her political polling and credited with establishing the first call center and formal group focus facility in Hawaii. She's the one where when you get the call from them, they're pronouncing the Hawaii names correctly, right? <laughs> you know it's a local poll. We also have Randy Pereira, the executive director of the Hawaii Government Employees Association, led that union since 2000. And of course, that's the biggest public sector union here in Hawaii with 42,000 members, Randy. And Pete Peterson visiting us. He's from Dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy in Malibu, California. And he's a leader in issues related to civic participation and the use, especially of technology, to make government more responsive and transparent. And couldn't we use more of that here? Thank you. Appreciate you all being here. Well, as, as the panel says, you know, the name of the panel, if we love Hawaii so much, why don't we vote? We all have opinions. We see no shortage of them. We're, we'll share them on Facebook. We'll share them to, with each other in debates. But then it comes to the ballot box, and we're down from the high 90s back in the 50s and 60s to 55%. Horrible in that last election. You know, we'll start with Randy. Your, your organization is among those that can help drive a significant number of people to the polls. It's certainly the sign waving and reminding people to vote. What's the disconnect? Why aren't people voting? Actually, I've given this a fair amount of thought because uh, voting is not really a, a problem among public employees. We poll our members regularly. And I know the polling is accurate because Barbara does it for us. <laughs> but... In that polling, it shows that roughly about 90% of our members are registered to vote, and sometimes up to 93% of them vote or claim to vote in every election. Uh, so for us, it's, it's not so much of an issue. I think part of the disconnect, though, is that people today don't understand government, the different jurisdictions of government. They don't understand how it works. I think they are frustrated because they feel that their vote will not make a difference. And as a result, they just lack interest. And in often, oftentimes, I'm not going to blame a one-party system, but they're not interested in the candidates. And it, uh, it just, just fuels this apathy that, that, that makes people sit at home rather than actually exercise their right to vote. Sure. Barbara, you had done some work on this in, in past years as well in looking after, of course, getting, getting people's opinions before the vote, <laughs> but afterwards as well. What do they say about why? What, what, what broke down? Why didn't they get in the car and go vote or turn in that absentee ballot? Well, we don't do as much work after the fact because we're usually more interested in who's going to win and what the issues are and what should be talked about. But when we have looked afterwards, there's just a myriad of, I'm going to call them excuses because that's what they are. Um, if, if the weather's too nice, they went to a football game instead. This is a, I'm thinking of primaries now, uh, or activities. They had to work. They had to this. They had to that. I think there just wasn't a compelling enough reason to go to the polls and vote. A and 
that also over the years is what I call this creeping cynicism happening. People don't think their vote's going to matter. They don't think it's going to count. Uh, and I'm always surprised in an election when somebody wins by 81 votes that people can't see that their vote really, really does count. Um, but, but what we really looked at more is before the vote. In fact, I did an interesting study that was published, which is the only reason I'll talk about it, for the Patsy T. Mink Pack. And that study was with young women trying to understand why they didn't register, why they didn't get involved and move ahead. And we don't talk about the issues in language they really understand. They're cynical. We make the whole process of getting involved hard. If we have... Um, meetings at the legislature on issues. They're during the day, there's no childcare, there's no place to park. So we have to look at engaging and bringing these younger folks along. The older folks here are still voting and they're still voting and they're really carrying the elections. Well, we have to do something to encourage the newer, younger voter to come out. And uh, so you, you see trends throughout the islands, Pete. Uh, and also throughout the mainland as well. Have, do you see a similar erosion in other markets, in other states, uh, or the same kind of apathy? I mean, certainly we have the worst percentage-wise, but we can't be the only ones trailing off. No, that's true. I, I think over the last several presidential cycles, we've seen, by and large, a, a decline in voter turnout. In California, we've seen that. Uh, I come from a place in Malibu right next to Los Angeles, where we just had a, a mayoral race that was decided by a voter turnout of less than 20% of our voters. Now, that opens up the window. I, I really look at these issues through four different lenses. One is logistics, the second is demographics, the third is politics, and the fourth is culture. Uh, logistics is the study of are there issues uh, related mostly to the Secretary of State's office that prevent people from voting or make it difficult to register to vote. Um, the second, in looking at demographics, are, you, are there issues where you have a, a very young group of people voting? Um, younger voters across the country tend to vote at lower rates than any of the other age groups. Uh, also, in, in large, uh, where there's a, a real mix of ethnicities, where there's a real multi-ethnic population, you tend to see lower turnout as well. We certainly see that in Los Angeles and in California. Politics, if it's a single-party state or if they're uh, on presidential election cycles, if you're not in a state that's a real swing state, you're going to see lower turnout as well. And then finally, culture. Um, is, is this a state where there's, and I'm not saying this of Hawaii specifically, but are, are we looking at a state where there's a real sense of civic trust? Uh, that, that voting is something that even if I know rationally, you know, that term the political scientists use, rational ignorance, where it's, where it's rational to be ignorant of our politics if I just have one vote, um, is that something that people overcome through a, a, a cultural kind of peer pressure that this is what we do? This is what we do in this town, in this city, in this state. And so through those four lenses, when you look at Hawaii, the logistics really isn't a major issue. Uh, the demographics, I think, are an issue. The, the, the youth do not turn out to vote. They're, they're already a, a demographic that doesn't turn out well, but in Hawaii in particular, when you look at the 16 cycle and the 12 cycle, they turned out at even lower numbers than what you saw nationally. Politics, it is a one-party state, but as we were talking before in the green room, it's been a one-party state for a long time. 
Um, and so that really shouldn't be that much of an issue. But has the culture changed? Has the culture changed in this state? Whereas when you look back at the 60s and 70s, and you saw that real understanding of this is what it's like to have a vote, and you saw those 70, 80, 90% voter turnout figures, um, now that we're removed from that and that generation is, is being replaced by the next generation that maybe doesn't have that feeling of civic trust and civic responsibility, I think those are the lenses that are at play here. You talk about the logistics for a moment, too, and we do see some interesting trends and perhaps bright spots with our absentee voting here in that I think we're over, well over half of people are choosing to vote, who vote, vote by absentee, and of those who ask for a ballot, I believe it's the high 80% that turn those in. So I guess that means the rest of folks are just forgetting to mark their calendar for vote, uh, you know, voting day. So from the perspective of could we be doing more, we have the uh, all-mail uh, ballot, or all-mail election bills come up in each legislative session and they try, uh, and it hasn't, hasn't made it quite yet. Um, you know, Barbara, do you hear that when you talk to people on the phone about will you vote? If so, how? What do you hear about just putting it in the mail? And, and as you were talking about over half are voting by mail now, that's true. But when we ask, when we're doing polling near the election and we say, have you already voted? How will you vote? It's the older folks who are voting by mail because they're determined they're going to vote. Nothing's going to happen to keep them from the polls and they're voting by mail. If the younger folks are going to do it, what we found is they tend to walk in, walk into City Hall or walk in someplace ahead of time and vote. And it's easier to put that off than it is the other way. I think I would love to see us have voting by mail or even voting online. Just make it as easy as possible. We can register online. Why can't we vote online? Sure. Randy, what do you think of that, going to that method? Unfortunately, I think there's still some people that believe that old yeah. wives' tale that if you vote, you're going to get caught for jury duty. Yes. And as a result, well, that's no longer true. Uh, yeah. They use that as, as one of the excuses. And, and it, as Barbara suggested, it's most unfortunate that as we've made it easier to vote, it's just the likelier voters that are taking advantage of the easier methods as opposed to those who are not inclined to vote at all. I think to some degree, too, um, because people don't understand and they're not so engaged on a daily basis, I'll give you as an example. If you are led to believe that it's as difficult to register to vote as it is to get a driver's license here, you're not going to register because you have to show up with all 15 pieces of ID now to get a driver's license renewed. And if people are, if they have that misconception about registering to vote, then it's, it's not a process they're going to participate in. Are you seeing things elsewhere in the country that are engaging the younger voters, and whether it's technology and the logistics for voting, where other jurisdictions are having some success with getting the younger voters to put a ballot in the mail or show up for early voting? You know, California is actually very progressive on these issues. Uh, we just went to automatic voter registration. So when you register to get your driver's license, you are automatically registered to vote. You will be sent a registration in the mail that is that confirms, and it's an opt-out system, not an opt-in system. Uh, that's also being used in the state of Washington. Um, most of the ways in which we try to make it logistically easier to vote really just tinker around the edges of these much larger problems. Uh, most of the political science research that's been done on automatic voter registration, same-day registration, Online registration. Online registration certainly has shown some real bumps in the number of people who register, but still 
Those are, you know, the, the, the task is to get them to vote, and so you still see significant drop-offs there. Uh, when I go back to those four lenses again about logistics, demographics, politics, and culture, the logistics is really only a, a one or two or maybe 3% change in voter turnout. It's really those three other lenses that really make a big difference. Of course, we sit here in Hawaii and in a very blue state in that, but with all that's recently going on on the national horizon and voter fraud task forces and, and what have you, mm. does that start to, do you, do you think in Hawaii, Randy, have any effect to erode voter confidence here? Do we have to worry about the, some of the national scare tactics um, causing any more uh, lack of, or, or any, uh, turning any more people away from civic engagement than, than we're already turned off by it? Well, for fear that I'd have nothing intelligent to say tonight, I actually asked a bunch of people you know, why their friends don't vote. So did I. And uh, <laughs> the common response is that people, irrespective of party affiliation, uh, believe that elected officials are not acting in their best interest. They are not speaking uh, in a way to address the concerns that they as everyday citizens have. And as a result, they're just they don't care. They're totally disengaged. So as Barbara points out, it's easy to use an excuse. I think what will be very interesting, there are uh, efforts now, there are going to be a number of younger people that are choosing to try and run for office in 2018. We will see if that will then uh, spur some younger folks to turn out, because otherwise it is the older folks are, that, are, that are carrying the voting here. And at the same time, perhaps what we will see, given the dysfunction in Washington, uh, whether or not in the results of the 2016 election, the level of upset that it has caused in some quarters, whether or not that now will spur people to realize that it is actually important to turn out and vote. They left the election to somebody else and look what happened. So we'll see. I think 2018 will be an interesting test case for us. Barbara, you, you, see, you nodded when he said you asked some friends, you asked some folks recently too. What'd you hear? Oh. I agree, and one of the other things that I heard from people when I did my why didn't you vote thing so that I would make sure I had something to say was uh, some said that they didn't vote in the last presidential election because they thought we had so few electoral votes it wasn't going to matter anyway, it wasn't going to make any difference. Uh, so that, that was very interesting to me to, to think that's how people thought. I do think that sometimes also we don't engage people and talk about the issues in their language. I think Pete mentioned that a minute ago, but I think that we can't negate that or say it's not that important. It is very important. If we don't touch people, and we've learned through polling here that People vote for people, they don't vote for issues. The only reason the issues are really important is you learn about the person and you learn about their character through listening them, to them talk about issues. So talk so that the voters can understand you and know what you're talking about and you touch what's important to them. Uh, I think the last thing I'll say on that, instead of talking about housing projects and affordable housing and big developments and zoning and this and that, Many people just want to be able to move out of their parents' home and have their own apartment. Talk about it in terms that they can understand. Now, over the years here, here in Hawaii, the, the technology, I think, has gotten a little bit better to at least know what's going on at, at the Capitol <laughs> and Hawaii.gov websites or at City Hall. But by and large... It's really tough to participate here, wouldn't you say? You, if you could try to get, you got to get off work, get down there, try to find parking. Good luck with that. It, that generally, besides a few 
evening special meetings or a, a few field trips that the councils or, or the lawmakers will take um, out of their building. It's about the, doing the impossible to actually engage. So when we talk about moving beyond just voting day, mm. you know, of course mm -hmm. you get all these messages, vote, 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 and then later, but leave us alone for the rest of the year, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, with, you know, with, of course, with several exceptions uh, individually, but as a whole, as an institutional whole, yeah, vote, 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 and then uh, we'll call you back in another couple of years when it's time to vote again. Uh, Pete, what, what do you see in other, other areas that have had more success with true, year-long, all-the-time civic engagement, not just, you know, come out and see us on voting day? So the work I do at Pepperdine, I have uh, run something called the Davenport Institute for Public Engagement there, and essentially the work of the institute is to train and consult with government officials to lead more effective public processes. If you speak to any legislator or anyone on the administrative side, whether it's a police chief or a planner or a city manager, for example, and you ask them, do public meetings generally work? Everybody knows they're broken. Everybody knows they're broken. And if you speak to most of the public that shows up, if they're gonna be able to make it there on a Tuesday afternoon, uh, they'll also say that most of them are broken as well. But there's, I think there's some real hope. Uh, there's, there are a growing number of methodologies and facilitated processes. We consult on them. We train government officials on how to lead more effective public processes. We've actually had 2,000 local government officials and state government officials go through the training. Uh, seminars that we run, but there's also a, a really interesting set of new technologies that are coming out as well that are being used to poll and survey citizens uh, in a way that won't, that's not a vote, that's not going to determine a decision, but it can at least better inform uh, policymakers. And so both on the in-person side, on the facilitated process side, but also in technology, what's, what's known as Gov 2.0, this this moving out of just simply showing up at a meeting and just sitting at a dais and listening, those days are increasingly uh, over. And uh, both either in facilitated meetings and processes or uh, technology, we're seeing some real great things happen, mostly at the local level, I would say, uh, but it is happening. What difference might a process like that make, Randy, in your mind, when you look at some of our, our big just... Uh, as, as we would, might say, radioactive issues that we have here. When we, we have these just, uh, uh, whether it's a, from the TMT to, to the recent rail hearings to things that just seem like people talking at each other rather than talking with each other, uh, would a reformation of how the government does business and how the public discourse takes place during the legislative year make a difference for people? I would hope that it would, but to be honest, I think I'm, I'm somewhat cynical about that just because I think what was said earlier really is true. People vote for people. They don't necessarily cast votes based on issues and interests. They vote for people. That's how former wrestlers and Arnold Schwarzenegger get elected and perhaps how our president got elected. Um, so they react to the individual, and if the individuals then that are running for public office are able to, as Barbara and uh, Barbara said earlier, just to communicate at a level that the individual voter or citizen understands, that can draw that individual to vote just to show up for that person. But, but part of the challenge, I think, in Hawaii is that uh, we have gotten away from attempting to ensure that our younger, our kids, 
and our younger adults are aware of government, its role, and what true civic responsibility means. I'm old enough to say that I had to take a civics class when I was in high school. So I learned about government, but that's no longer true today. Uh, my kids know very little. And even given the job that I have, they know very little about government function. They know problems, but they don't know if it's a city problem, a state problem, or, or what, you know, who should be solving that problem. And I think those are the kinds of things we've got to tackle. That's right, Barbara. You know, and, and to acerbate the whole thing, I think that sometimes our legislators, I'm thinking more on the local level now, are not always responsive. Um, they, they get elected, and maybe the constituents write them a letter about something or call them and express a concern, and they don't hear back. Or if they do hear back, it's just sort of a form letter. So I think that part of the task belongs to the people who get elected to uh, try to engage and continue with their constituents so they get that support, because they'll remember that the next time you run for office. Sometimes we have a phenomenon here, though, that, that can be the, the, the loudest voice in the room or, or the one that just hits send the most times on the emails or, um, uh, or a predetermined outcome, whether it be in an in EIS, that right or wrong, the public thinks. Ah, they knew what they wanted in that anyway, right? Yes. Do you see a disconnect, Barbara, between when you pull people and you hear how they feel about the issues, and then you see what comes out in the policy as, oh, well, this is just the will of the people. It's not always the same. No, it's not. And it's, and it's not in the language that people understand either. They see the policy and they think, that's not what I asked for. And it might really be, but, but it's in all the legalese and legislative talk, talk on the bills. But, you know, but we have shown in Hawaii that if there's an issue that people really, really care about, they will come out. Uh, I think when the uh, same gender issue was up before the legislature for vote, there were, what, 3,300 people or 2,700, uh, enormous number of people signed up to testify and found a place to park and got there and didn't go away from work and, and did it. So, but we have to learn to make people feel their voices heard and that they, can they should take part in the process. Right, I could think of another couple of times when people got, got bust in and then socialized. Right. So we'll find a way Everything. to get there and we need to be there. Yes. Um, you know, Pete, when you talk about facilitated processes mm -hmm. and master planning and things that have, that have gone right for some other jurisdictions, right. you know, what I mentioned sort of about the predetermined um, studies or that, well, there's, there can be a, 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 a cynicism here. I think that oh, I just did a story recently about a master plan for buses on the Big Island. And it was to expand their really shabby bus system. And they're having these, these master planning sessions and the community's coming out. And they're saying, that's just, thanks for asking. I need a, a bus to my, to my, I'm getting more buses down to Pune. Mm. And then they look at what the results of the master, master plan and there's not enough buses to Pune. Right. And so they go, I forget that. Why did, why did I bother? Yeah. Can, when you've seen them go right and wrong, what right. keeps a, a civic engagement process from going off the rails into something that, that was predetermined versus something that stays genuine and comes out with the outcome that the community wanted. So when I've seen processes go bad is when the cake is baked, right? Um, the late great US Senator Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a political scientist, by the way, uh, said once, and I quote, um, public engagement is a process by which a public sector official engages a private sector citizen to do what the public sector official wants, right? It's this understanding of what we would call in the trade, starting with the end in mind, and the public sniffs that out, right? 
And sometimes when uh, I hear a public sector official say, boy, we can't get anybody to turn out to the meetings, I'll then do a diagnosis to hear what the history has been of public meetings, and I'll come to a pretty quick conclusion. Well, I know why nobody shows up, because people have gone through a history of understanding that if I show up, it's just really a rubber stamp. It's a box to check. Um, where I see these processes work is usually out of desperation, right? Well, we'll get a call at the office, and a city manager or mayor or... A uh, council member will say, we've been trying to solve this land use issue for six years. It's been in and out of the courts. Somebody just got recalled off the council. We need to do something different. We obviously don't have the answer here on council. We're willing to take our hands off the wheel a little bit of what the final outcome is. Uh, will you help us? And then there's a chance, right? So there's got to be... I wish it wasn't this, but we're all human beings, right? That, that, that changes in behavior usually come out of being forced. <laughs> and so you, I will see changes in behavior on the part of either administrative or elected officials when they're forced to. And usually that force will happen when there's been a history of, boy, you know, we really thought we had the right answer. We went before the public, and all of a sudden we started getting these lawsuits from this organization we never heard of before, and we never included them in any of the so-called public meetings. Um, again, that's at a place when uh, you, you stand a chance of having a positive, more collaborative outcome. Sure. Mayor, you talk about the cake, the cake is baked. We just came out from a process recently. And no matter where you stand on, on the rail issue, for example, we had three days of, more than three days of hearing in which we were told there's a bill, we're going to have a hearing, nothing's going to change about the bill, but come and talk about it anyway. Okay. And a lot of people still did, I mean, remarkably, a lot of people still did come and talk with not a chance to change anything about the bill. Good for them for still going down. Yeah. But well, I mean, what, would make a, what would make the politicians in those cases uh, or the powers that be uh, change anything about that if the outcome's going to be how they decided it was going to be? Well, I think everybody probably remembers those healthcare town hall meetings back at the beginning of the Affordable Care Act when, when representatives went out to their towns and communities and, and uh, I know at least the congressmen and women, they had already voted on the bill <laughs> back in Washington and then they were holding these town hall meetings which have a sense of, well, the public is going to be engaged and we're going to listen and we actually tracked those at, at Pepperdine to look at really where they began to fall apart and it's when people began to realize in the audience that nobody was taking any notes on what they were saying. <laughs> because what, why take notes when you've taken the vote already back in DC and then you go to the public afterwards? So it's the same kind of set of issues. Uh, but it all starts from that premise on the part of the government official. Is something on the table here for public discussion or isn't there? Um, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of ways our public comment processes have been used is really as a box to check. It's something we legally have to do. We have to let the public know that this is happening. I just got to grit my teeth for three hours and get through this meeting, and then we're going to go and do what we had already planned to do. And sometimes that works. Uh, but increasingly, and we're seeing this in all the polling that shows the declining levels, levels of trust in our governing institutions at all levels, uh, that's, that's shown to be an unsustainable way of public problem solving. So if it's unsustainable, and yet the public has been so turned off by, by seeing it happen to them over and over, is there the potential to, for the public independently to re-engage, to take it back over, and to demand more, uh, and to, man, to demand a, a true process and true transparency? I mean, Randy, do you think that the, the public has the stomach to, to go do that? And, and if they've been burned so many times before? 
I think the, the, the primary disconnect is that, that all of us face different challenges in our day-to-day -day life that we wish would be resolved. Take traffic. Traffic is a major issue depending on where you live. But traffic is not an issue that is before the legislature every year. It's not always before the city council. Elected officials are charged with running government, and that entails a lot of different things. But it doesn't solve the everyday person's problem of sitting in his or her car for an hour and a half to and from work. So they don't see the importance of what an elected official is charged with doing, and as a result, they just have no connection to the voting process and ultimately what legislators or, or council members do. At the same time, I think what Pete says is, is correct, that in many instances, because they have a different view, uh, perhaps an insider's view of what government is, the elected officials know what's right for us. And irrespective of what the will of the people may be, they may make decisions based on a lot of other factors. Uh, and, and the cake's already baked, so why should I comment? And that's where I think it's gonna be it's going to be very difficult for us to regain or restore trust because it just seems that we are going on different paths and we're, we're just not connecting. Barbara, what do you hear as you, as you speak with people about that? Well, I think that one of the issues also that needs to be considered is that we've become a state of activists and non-participants. Mm -hmm. You're either one or the other. There's not the average person who's willing to step up and give their opinion. So when you go to these meetings, such as Pete was talking about, what you have there are just two or three small activist groups. And I think everybody would agree, doesn't matter what you try to do in Hawaii, whether you're for it or against it, there's going to be somebody try to stop it. And it's going to be some small group. I've done enough polling for issues to know that sometimes the, even our client will say, everybody's against this or that, and you do a bona fide poll and you find they're not, that the majority of people actually want this, but there's this very vocal group. So we've gotta make the average citizen or the average voter vocal and, and care. How to do that exactly, I don't know. I just pose the problems, I don't have the answers. <laughs> That's for these people. Well, we're, we're gonna have our visitor tell us the, uh, what, the, what you see in other places for the answers because we, we hear that a lot. TMT issue. Well, yes. the silent majority, uh, yes. the silent majority supports it. We keep hearing. Yes. Okay. Well, then, you know, if that's true, speak up. How do, how do you get something like that to, to turn around so that you know certainly all sides should have their say? But if the majority is not saying, how do you how do you change that? Well, I one of the things that we talk about in our training is that you either engage your public or they will engage you. And they will usually do it on a platform and in a way not of your choosing. Uh, and so when, sometimes when, I'm, when we're consulting on a process and I'm across the table from a city council member or mayor and they're like, ah, you know, this just seems like it's gonna cost too much money and take too long. What I'll try to lead that person through is a diagnostic to say, well, how long will it take if this goes to the court? How long is this gonna take if we have to go to a ballot box and two or three people get recalled and we're back at the same place two or three years? Because I have seen that happen a bunch of times. But it's, it's hard to prove a negative, right? And so, but again, you know, uh, not to be uh, 
too dire on my view of human nature, it usually t it, it takes somebody being able to say, all right, I want to avoid that pain by doing something else. And, uh, and there are, in our democracy, our democratic republic, many ways that we can engage on policy decisions. And it's not just the ballot box, but it's also not also, it may not also be in polite conversation. Um, and I'm sure you're seeing that on some issues uh, here in the islands. We definitely see that in California. We've got a high-speed rail situation, which it was started by a vote to, to create a bond measure. It was passed in the ballot, but here we are 10 years later, and maybe 10 miles of track have been built, and people are now calling it the rail to nowhere, you know? So does that sound familiar? Wait, I don't, are you I don't know. Yes. I don't know. But... I mean, and this is a, it started out as a $35 billion when it was proposed in the ballot to sell the, the bond measure. It was told, we were told as voters that this was going to be a $35 or $40 billion project. Now we're up pushing $80 to $90 billion to get this done. And people are wondering, how, how is this possibly going to happen? Um, and I think to your point, I think there is a growing groundswell to put it back on the ballot or to find some other democratic mechanism to to stop this from being built well we've learned ours is a bargain so thank you we've never thought we would say that right, no. you know but but again everybody there's there's so many people who feel passionately about the rail and getting it done right and getting it done so you can get out of traffic and just if it would just get working um and yet again you don't hear we we see when we run rail stories in, at the news and we get probably 90%, you know, just like people saying stink about the project on, on Facebook or on the comments. But we know that it's not 90% against the project or it would never have passed mm -hmm. at the ballot box before. So, again, you know, where, where are the, it's so easy to say something negative, but where are people to step up and say something positive? Okay, maybe it's not just, it's just not human nature to do that. Um, but at the same token, we are so nice and polite in Hawaii. You'd think there would be people stepping up to say some of the positive things about, yeah, I want, I see the good in the telescope. I see the good in the rail. I see the good in, in the super ferry. May it rest in peace. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> but, but where, um, you know, what, what would it take to, to have the sort of the average Joe become the activist and not just those who feel they got to either kill something or ram something down people's throat that they, they absolutely don't want. Randy, do you, do you have a sense of what turns the average person into somebody who will hold a sign for something? Sometimes it's fear, uh, the fear of, the, of a particular outcome. Uh, but again, oftentimes it's really the relationship that one, here in Hawaii anyway, the relationship that one develops with the individual that's running. Uh, I think that drives more than anything else. But I, I'm, I have to be hopeful, like everybody in the room, and optimistic that you know, perhaps we will be able to turn the corner and, and get some form of, of greater civic engagement, perhaps the youngest generation now. I don't know what they're called. I lost track after the millennials. Are we, Z? Are we to Z already? But at any rate, um, I'm hopeful that, that they see the value of participating in the civic process and consider voting and, and using that as a means of effectuating change. Uh, because otherwise, you know, if it's left to the, it, just the boomers are the vote, ones voting now and we're fading fast. 
I mean, what you talk about speaking speaking a language too. I, I can't imagine my. I have a fourteen year old and an eleven year old, and the fourteen year olds pretty well in, engaged, I would say, in the news of the day or that, but not from watching it on TV or reading it in a newspaper. He knows what's going on from, from his phone before the rest of us have had our coffee. Uh, Barbara, have you started with any, any kind of polling, any insights into our youngest generation that is coming in, into the voting this year? We've done more qualitative research than quantitative that was specifically aimed at those younger folks. Um, and it's hard to get them engaged. They're very, I, I tell a story sometimes to people. When we do focus groups, I like to go in the back room, bef in the viewing room before the group starts, just to kind of get a look at the, the group I'm gonna have. And it used to be that they would be engaged in talking to each other. They would talk about what high school they went to and finding that connection, you know, that social connection. Now, oh no, I may as well not go back there. Everybody has their phone in their hand and they're doing whatever. In fact, I now say at the beginning of a focus group that they need to put their cell phones away and if I catch anybody, texting under the table or reading emails, I will excuse them from the group and they won't get the gratuity. It's come, become that bad. So I don't know for sure what to do, but we need to help them engage as people again and communicate like face-to-face. -face. I know that I'm an old fogey, but you know, it's just... No, it you're right. I, I've place. texted my son from across the room before. Oh, my gosh. Well, I, I will I'll add, though, that I, I really believe it starts at home. Now, granted, given the job that I have, I'm an advocate, but all three of my kids are registered to vote, and they vote on their own. And they don't necessarily, unfortunately, they don't necessarily pardon me, necessarily ask me who to vote for, <laughs> which is tough, but they vote. And it, I think it, it starts at home, it matters. Uh, well, I will add to that in that when I was a kid, voting was a family thing. We all went to the polls, even as kids. And I've done that with my kids when, from the time they were little. It isn't that I couldn't find a babysitter, but we took them with us to go vote. And now we still go vote as a family. I have kids who live with my grown kids who live with me and grandkids, and we go vote. And I think we have to set the example, and we have to continue talking about civic responsibility. And it's not that they're ill-informed. No. You know, I think no. in fact, they're very very well informed, very, very smart, and have a great depth of knowledge about it. Pete, what are you seeing in terms of how, whether it's on voting day or beyond, in, mm -hmm. in these opportunities for civic engagement, what are, are the best ways to stay connected with, with that young generation? And I imagine technology is part of that answer. It is, you know, uh, the, the, the data on news sources, and especially handheld news now uh, coming through our smartphones, uh, especially for younger demographics is off the charts. I mean, I, I think in some ways, uh, you know, I was, I was flying down here this morning and I cracked open a, something that's called a newspaper. I know that some people <laughs> forgot what that looks like, but I had somebody just a row over that was up online, down looking at their news um, on their smartphone on a plane, right? And so uh, I think there are definitely different platforms, but, but I, I, do, I do think that there is something different happening here. Um, Sherry Turkle, who's a, uh, a psychologist and researcher at MIT, has done a lot of work on how our technologies are changing, how we're communicating with one another, and she has a great book out called um, Reclaiming Conversation, and talks a lot about how technology is fundamentally changing our younger generation and how they actually engage and communicate with one another. 
Um, and the stories all through focus groups that she does that are replete in this book, just about lower levels of empathy, not being able to read each other's uh, body language and signals because so much of our conversation, so to speak, is mediated by these devices. Uh, I, I really do think that, the, you know, sometimes you say, well, you know, it's just a new technology. That's just how things are. I, I really do think that there's something different about the smartphones and handheld technologies in both how we engage with one another and even talk about politics because the data has shown that these, we're, we're seeing declining levels of empathy in millennials and the generation that's following them. And if there's anything that our politics needs nowadays is more empathy. Um, and I think it's, it's very unfortunate that, uh, that in some ways our devices are changing the way that we engage with one another. Oh, and that is refreshing, and I'll hear every, every so often of a, it's not district-wide certainly, but a certain school or a certain program might try to have programs in peace, empathy, civics. But more often than not, it, being in the debate club is something uh, on the side, not mm -hmm. something that's a required course. And, and so, yes, as we go into um, even being prepared to go speak at one of these public hearings and speak in a civil manner to those who are higher elected to, uh, to listen to you, <laughs> that's, we're, well, we see that, I think, as we cover the news, is how people are presenting their ideas. And it's, it's not in a, in a very civic tone mm. uh, most of the time either. Yeah. It, it's interesting to see if that maybe bringing that into the school level as, as a requirement, speech courses, uh, debate courses, things that well, aren't just optional. We used to have those, right? I mean, there were courses on persuasion and rhetoric. I mean, these were certain, certainly parts of, uh, and civics, of course, parts of uh, most major uh, grade school curricula. But I would also say that one of the other things, it's not just that how our conversations and communications are mediated, it's also how we're now able to to control our news sources to a degree that we've never been able to do before. Um, there was a time when you read a newspaper, by and large, you were gonna get some different points of view or at least just the straight news as you were reading it. Today, you can really bookmark your entire news source across 20 or 30 different websites and really control where that, what that perspective is that's speaking to you. And I think with that, if you've trained your mind to speak and not really be familiar with other points of view, you show up at these town meetings and you're, you're absolutely dumbstruck that somebody else thinks differently than you do. Um, and I think in part, we're, we're training our minds, unfortunately, to think that way if, we're, if, if uh, what we're getting our news from is in, we're able to much more uh, control those news sources. So I think that's something else that we really we really need to be mindful of. And that can make a difference in civic engagement if what you're consuming comes from a predetermined way you wanted to hear it. No, that's right. true. You know, Randy, you represent tens of thousands of members of all different ages, I imagine. Do you see a difference um, in, in the engagement? I mean, to some degree, you know, some of it may be some required attendance at some sign wavings in that, but otherwise, for those who oh, want to engage, volunteer. strictly voluntary. Uh, for those who, uh, for those who who want to engage, who, who take on a leadership role, who who find themselves, you know, wanting to make a difference in a certain issue on their uh, on their uh, extracurricular time, what do you see in the differences between the old timers and some of the newer folks? Well, clearly, I think there's a there's a greater understanding of of history and of how government functions among those who've been around longer and who are more experienced. Younger employees pick up pretty fast. And, and frankly, what we see that motivates a, a lot of people is that they do see the impact that an elected official has on the jobs that they do. 
and in particular, you will find that, say, state employees, next year you'll see, I would anticipate most state employees are going to vote. They're going to vote either in support of the incumbent governor or they're going to vote against him because they don't either like him or they don't like their boss. And they realize that that governor appoints their boss. So it, it's something that, that we see in every, every four years in the cycle where people are motivated to turn out depending on how they are impacted on the job. And that's one reason, as I mentioned at the top, that the public employees here in Hawaii by and large vote because there is a direct connection between their employment, which they spend most of their time at, and uh, the people who are in office. Now, and you make a good point that I think speaks to something, Barbara, you said earlier was, at the end of the day, is this vote I'm going to cast or this hearing I'm going to go to make a difference to the life I am living? And even if you're not a public employee, does it get me out of my parents' basement? Does it help mm. get my grandma, you know, some long-term care we can actually afford? And, and can I afford my grocery bill this month? Do, do you hear that? Yes, and they don't really know that. So therefore, when they walk into that polling booth to push the lever, push the button, mark the X, however they're going to do it, they're thinking, who can I trust the most to act in my best interest? Who can I trust the most to do that? I mean, we were talking about these things, and I remembered something I saw on Alelo the other day. They were showing a uh, meeting of legislators, county legislators, I won't say what county or where, and they, there was a... Um, opportunity for testimony and there were people testifying and three of the people sitting on the panel listening legislators were on their iPhones and I thought oh now that's engagement they have their constituents <laughs> sitting in there and they're on their iPhones so you have to have your rule yeah, yeah they didn't that's have right. my rule <laughs> they didn't have it put it away that's right no siphon for you if you no. don't put that away we have a few more minutes to spend here before we go into questions and answers. If you do have some questions, please keep them top of mind. We'll be coming around to, to hear those and, and get some insights from the panel. But, you know, it's some final thoughts. We could sit here and suggest what lawmakers should do or what the government should do or what the powers that be should do to, you know, to try to make changes. But really, it's, it's just all of us. We're the voters. We're the potential participants. We're, we're the, the average citizens. What advice would you, what one, you know, one, two or three things of advice would you give to, to the average citizen that they could do tomorrow and in the coming year to really boost their own and their family's civic engagement? Pete? I would say first go local. Uh, if, you're not, if you don't know who your mayor is, shame on you. If you don't know what your city council is up to, if you don't know the difference between what a city council decides on and what a school board decides on, you really should, because if you have kids in the school district, or if you have friends who have kids in the school district, or you're hiring kids out of the school district, these are a set of issues that you really should care about. And I think what's unfortunate is that part of the reason why, and I totally agree with you, Barbara, that we're in this weird space where we're either hyper-partisan, hyper-engaged, or we're completely apathetic. And I think one of the reasons why many have kind of walked away from the voting booth and from civic engagement is many of the issues have become so nationalized that they realize I really can't do anything about that. Um, but there really are things that you can do at a local level that over time you then begin to see how that then is affected or is impacted by decisions that are made in DC or at the larger state level. But I would say, first off, really look at the local level because those are the decisions that have a better chance of affecting your everyday life. 
advice. Barbara, what can the average family do to be doers and not donters? Well, I tend to be overall an optimist. So I do think it's, it's part of family. We, we, we need to encourage the adults and families to help their kids, help the younger folks coming up, whether it's within the schools, whether it's within your families, to understand the political process, to understand the voting process, and to really make sure everybody understands their votes count. And then we have to kind of make sure their vote does count by holding the people we elect nose to the grindstones to actually do what they say because that's the thing that really disappoints people when they elect somebody and then they feel, I'm not saying it's true enough, but they feel that their promises weren't kept. That totally disillusions them from voting again. So voting's hard work because you, you can't just vote, but you have to check on it every so yes. often and make sure it's going well. You know, Randy, what, what advice would you give, would you give to the average person to, to move just beyond that, well, I voted, I did my duty, but to stay engaged? Uh, my simple, simply would be, don't give up. The moment that you choose to give up, you create a self-fulfilling prophecy of what your future will be. Uh, you have to continue to realize that uh, only through participation will you someday perhaps be able to effectuate change. And to the community at large, we have to continue to try efforts. We can't be cynics like I've suggested tonight, but we have to continue to try to, to make effort to make voting as easy as possible, whether that's uh, same-day registration, whether it's all-mail, whether it's voting online. We just have to continue as a community to try to make it an easier process to, for people to engage in, and with fingers crossed, we'll get there. That's great. Thank you. Do you have some questions from the audience as well? My name is Michael Clark. I'm a retired police lieutenant. I had 30 years of service here. And I've lobbied at the legislature, some good, some bad. Uh, the city and county now has a telecommunications system that affects all of EMS, something that was just a piece of paper a long time ago. So when I was with the union, we did a lot of active civic uh, involvement. My question here is, what about electronic voting, is it feasible? Would it get people from being so apathetic and not making the effort? They wouldn't even have to leave the bedroom. They could be sitting in their pajamas and do their voting. And if we do go to something of that nature, how can it be protected from hackers or otherwise? It's a couple of questions, but to especially since our younger generation is all about electronics and smartphones, it would seem to me that they would be using them more often. Is it feasible? Yeah, when, when, when will we be able to just click like and we're done? <laughs> well, it's going to be a while. I mean, most of the research that's been done on online voting is very disturbing. Um, I don't know how many, I, I, I don't think hardly a week goes by that we don't find out about some data breach for a credit card company or a rental car company or a retailer of some sort. Uh, the technology is, right now, is not up to uh, the security that would be necessary for this. Um, Estonia, a country uh, has, has experimented with online voting, but one of the ways that they're able to do it is everyone has a, uh, a voter ID card with a smart chip in it. 
I don't think the United States are, is, is ready for that kind of step. Um, but right now, uh, there, there is nothing on the horizon that I would say that would make me optimistic that we're going to be voting online anytime soon. As, um, as a group, you know, we like to use technology. We're actually, you know, technological alcohol, or not alcoholics, but holics to where we're <laughs> addicted to everything we do on our phone. Um, and so I think that online voting, um, and, I, and I could be wrong, might actually be very much a thing in the next five to 10 years. And I'm very hopeful because of the technology called blockchain. And I'm sure you've heard of blockchain with Bitcoin and other the cryptocurrencies that are currently occurring. But the beautiful thing about this technology is that it can be replicated to do many different tasks, many different things. And one of the things it can do is online voting. So there are various organizations currently right now doing research with blockchain technology to where it becomes uh, safe, secure, and totally transparent to where you have a personal ID that cannot be replicated and or, um, or uh, you know, copied, uh, but it, can, it, it gives you a unique number and there's a whole structure to the system to where it verifies that you're voting and that you are that person. So I think that with, um, with my question is, uh, do you see blockchain technology or any of those kind of technologies actually becoming something of a real thing in our voting system? I, I, be I believe it will happen. I, I am convinced when if you look at what uh, happened some time ago, 10 years ago, we would never have done a poll online because it, would, it was very bad. Now we regularly do, we're not, I'm not quite confident enough to do polls totally online, but we use mixed mode, partially online, partially on telephone all the time now, because that creates the most balanced poll. We get your folks in there, and we get my folks in there uh, as well. So I absolutely believe this will happen. And I, I think it will be good. Yes, okay. and, and I imagine, too, that beyond yeah. just the voting day, yeah. certainly using it more to make it easy yes. to weigh in on yeah. with your mm -hmm. testimony if you can't make mm -hmm. it or sending a little video clip mm -hmm. or whatever. Has, it's, it's in our city council here in Honolulu. It's, it's in t very cumbersome to submit a piece of testimony. It's all these drop-downs, and you got to find the exact date, and then you got to hook it to that and type all these things versus just like... I just want to say something about big houses, yeah. but you can't just easily do that. Right? Well, I would say just on that, the platforms, at least for surveying the public, are increasing and getting better and better. Um, a couple months ago, I was speaking at an event in the Bay Area. I got into my hotel room the night before. I went on my Facebook feed, and sure enough, I got an advertisement from the city of Santa Monica saying, if you click through this, we'd like to tell you more about a major development that's happening in downtown Santa Monica. I clicked through, it was a platform designed by a company out of Vancouver called MetroQuest, which is a great platform for planning decisions because it tells you, it not only asks you, you know, do you want it to look like this or this, it actually shows you in a running ticker on the side the fiscal impact of the decisions that you're being asked to make. And so it actually makes you accountable uh, for decisions, not just saying, well, I want a park or I want a 20-story building. You know, depending on whatever mix of decisions that you're allowed to make through this platform, you really get to see the fiscal impact, which of course is what policymakers have to deal with all the time. So those kind of, that kind of survey technology online, I think, is, is terrific and getting better all the time. Very neat. 
spite of the fact that Hawaii has a very polite culture. Um, and I've tried to engage many young people to register to vote, and they basically told me they didn't think their vote counted. Maybe there's a way through technology to, through polling or some other kind of data to inform them about how the population really feels. Like if we hear one loud mouth says, oh, we, this should be done in Hawaii, but the basic population has a different opinion. Maybe then we could engage more young people. Can you think of other ways to educate our young people as to major questions for the state to keep them informed, to help them get engaged? Randy, what do you see works with, with your, when, when you put out a, whether if it's a newsletter, is that a certain, a certain uh, age group will read that? Do you, you fire it out on, on, uh, on emails versus texts or? Well, we try, we use all, all modes of, of, of communication and hope and trust that we're able to capture then the different groups, uh, age groups within our, our member population. Uh, I wish we had an answer, right? but I, you know, like I said, I think for us to, we begin with a premise that our members are likelier to vote than they are not. So it's, it's less of a challenge for us. For us, the challenge is trying to convince them to vote a particular way and trying to persuade them to do that. But uh, they're likely to vote to begin with. Begin with. Well, to her question then about how do you amplify the silent majority when one loud mouth in the room has dominated the conversation, how, and, and you get so much information through polling, how, and sometimes it's private though, a lot of times it's private, yes. how, how can you appropriately, you know, let people know or get a sense from the community that like, hey, no, wait a minute, uh, out of these 1.3 million people, a million of them really do feel this particular way you would have never expected. How, how can we shed more light on that? Well, we do work for clients who intend to publish results and to do it. Now, yes, they have a partisan point of view, but it's not our role to support that partisan point of view. It's our role to do the survey in an unbiased, I call it bulletproof. Nobody can shoot holes in it when we're done because we've really used good methodology and moved along. And we do see where that has an impact when it's published and people go, oh yeah, that's how I feel too. It's not how everybody feels. I mean, let's go way back to uh, the queen, the super fairy, okay, the, the boat issue. Um, there were activists who were swimming out into the bays and there were all these things going on, yet on every single island, including the island where they were going out there trying to stop the, sh people wanted the super fairy. But, of course, you know, because of other issues, it didn't happen. But people wanted it, and it did give people who supported it, even on the islands where there were the activists, confidence in their role. So I think that is valuable. But would the government do that kind of polling? Is there that kind of money? Would they publish it? I don't know. So we're on the, on the cusp yeah. of one of they them. They can come see me. I mean, we're on the cusp of, of, of that now a bit with, with TMT and, and history yes. repeating. Mm -hmm repeating there. Any yeah. thoughts on, on, um, uh, on the lady's question in, in terms of giving them, giving people insights into how, how the rest of the people are feeling? Well, I've, I've facilitated public meetings with keypad polling devices, mm -hmm. and I've found that on, on a myriad of issues, it, it can be very surprising if you've done a good job of welcoming diverse viewpoints into the room as participants, that people will be surprised 
when given the uh, anonymity to say, what do you feel on issue X or Y, uh, that they're not the only person in the room, yep. right? Yes. Um, one, of the, one of the great ironies of our public comment is that it's probably the worst form of public engagement that there is. Uh, because essentially what we're doing is we're welcoming people up to a microphone to do something that all opinion polling shows is the greatest fear for mankind, and that is to speak in public. So what we've done, and in, in the training, I'll just say, we call it, we call microphones fly paper for whack jobs. Because we, essentially what we've done, essentially what we've done is for the, for the, for that silent majority out there, if we believe it's on an issue, chances are they're not going to be animated enough about it to go up and stand and deliver at a microphone. And it's, it's the only way, in many instances, that we provide a point of contact between policymaker and public is to do something like this and expect somebody to come to the microphone and address a dais that is looking down on you. I mean, even the way we design our spaces is meant to make the public feel inferior and also to draw people out. You notice you're all down there. Right, right, right. I mean, we have set, we have set most of our public meeting spaces up to be movie theaters. Now, what's the point of a, the architecture of a movie theater? To draw everybody's attention to one place and not to have people engage with one another, right? Which is really where we find and at the same time, we've timed that at three minutes at a microphone. We can't interrupt that person. If you're an elected official and somebody is popping off about something with total fake news for three minutes, you cannot interrupt them. So there's not even an opportunity to learn back and forth, but that's what we've created as that point of contact between citizens and our governing institutions. Um, but we found that when you get out of that model and do things like keypad polling or do some things that are a mix of online and offline, uh, you can get more of those voices that don't usually tend to show up at our public meetings. Well, and that probably gives us some good ideas to, to those who, who are in the position, elected officials, to go out and ask, not just yeah. listen to the ones who are emailing you on repeat or, or yelling at you from the... From the microphone. Well, and I'll just say just a quick note on that. Um, I mentioned before that Facebook ad that drew me to. I, I called up a friend of mine in the planning department. I said, well, why did you do this? Why did you reach out to me through Facebook? And they said, Pete, we've been having meetings on this for six months. You didn't even know this was happening? I, I didn't. And he said, well, the reason that we're doing it is we've been getting the same people out to these public meetings for six months. We've had this online platform up. We've had 2,500 people participate. Most of them have never been to a public meeting before. Right? So you've got to find those other ways of, of getting at the public, but it takes a want to. Next question on your right. Aloha, I'm Gary Gill. Um, I guess the latest whack job on the flypaper here. <laughs> um, um, I've served in public office, as did uh, my father before me, dealing with these kinds of issues. And what I haven't heard the panel discuss, I'd like you to share some ideas on how we can structurally change elections and governance. Not just motivating people to participate, but there are some really uh, structural things that other countries do that we haven't, like take the money out of politics, limit the time of an election so it doesn't favor the incumbents so much. Um, how about 
like in the good old days, we had multi-member districts. People could vote for more than just one person, so more people had a chance. My father was first elected to the territorial house, coming in third in the district in which he ran and went on to serve in Congress and as Lieutenant Governor. So how do you get people engaged in, uh, structurally? How about, if we look at the legislature, there's not a single hotel janitor serving in the legislature. Why? Everybody who's in there is an independent business person or is paid for by some other business. Why don't we make it full-time legislature, ban outside employment, so if I'm a hotel janitor, which I have been, uh, I can take some time off and run for office and actually support my family that way. And finally, why don't we have a unicameral legislature? You know how crazy it is to get a bill passed? Nobody in their right mind except lobbyists, can follow this process. Go from committee to committee to house to chamber, back and forth, and the, the labyrinthian method of getting a bill passed is defeating to everybody. Who has some thoughts about that? Well, I'll just say in, in California, we have really been, uh, it's, it's been a very exciting time to discuss those. We have ranked choice voting in a couple of our cities. Uh, there's been a discussion around multi-member districts. Uh, a friend of mine is actually just had a measure qualified for the 2018 ballot that would create neighborhood legislatures, uh, which would be a system of 10,000 representatives uh, that would all, in a very interesting way, make help make uh, decisions in Sacramento. So I, we're obviously gathering here because of what we've seen as declining levels of trust and declining levels of civic engagement. And I think that's also an opportunity for inspiration. And I, I think we are starting to see, at least in California, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's starting to spread in other, in other directions, uh, ways in which we can improve representation. I just want to make a couple of comments also. Like Gary, I served in the House for 10 years. I also served as a party chair. Uh, presently, for the last six years, I've been the head of the No Vote, No Grumble program here in Hawaii. Uh, the, the name says it all. And, and what happened is, about six years ago, the organization I work with, Partners in Development Foundation, wanted to increase the number of Hawaiians who voted. So we went out and we went to these communities and we did voter engagement drives and we saw, in the last six years, we had 20 partner organizations and we weren't just focused on Hawaiians we actually increased the number of registered voters. So Hawaii is no longer hurting or in the back of registered voters. Where we fell short is people who we registered okay. weren't voting. Right. So we went back out, and again, I speak to literally thousands of people, and they said the reason we're not voting is because, number one, there's nobody that we believe in to vote for on the ballot. Number two, and I guess, Randy, you're still my friend, but I gotta direct this one at you. They're saying that special interest groups control everything. The fact that your organization has so many people voting is that the people feel that their voices don't count. So what we started up is the Pono Policy Academy. The Pono Policy Academy is basically saying to the community, if there isn't somebody that you believe in to vote, find someone, we'll train them how to run, and they'll run for office, and engage the community so that people believe again in the system we have this disconnect right now in Hawaii that is really tragic. The reason people aren't voting is because, again, they don't believe the system is working for them. 
and we need to turn that around. So my question to the panel really is this, how can we get the regular person out there to believe enough in the system to put their name on the ballot, so whether they be a janitor for the, for, or whoever, that they are in their community against all odds, walking door to door and engaging people and getting them to believe that they're gonna be honest, courageous, and serve as a public servant and not go in there and expect to be served, which is what people believe they're there for now. The question is, how can we get people to say they're gonna run for office knowing that the chances of winning are very slim, they're gonna be held in a fishbowl all the time. Those of us who've held public office and I was in there for 10 years, we know what that's like. We need to get public servants to again step up and say, I will take up that charge and we'll train them. It's easy to run for office. It's hard to get elected because again, special interest group, but how can we get the public to believe that they can make that difference? That's my question. Have any of you worked well, with organizations or even with the parties here or, or even outside organizations that you're trying to recruit, you know, put the voters aside for a second, but try to recruit people to actually be on that ballot in the first place? But we have seen instances where an unknown runs for their first election and beats an incumbent. Uh, but they do have to have, I think one of the things that's lacking in some of the new candidates, and this is a personal opinion, I'm not taking this from my uh, polling or expertise, I, don't, I think we're somewhat lacking in the inspirational leaders and the inspirational representatives we had at one time. There aren't many Dan Inouye's and Patsy Minks and so forth out there. I, I believe there are those people who will rise up and will become that, but right now there aren't. And I, I applaud your work at trying to help that new generation have that happen. I mean, that was the basis of the survey that I talked about earlier for the Patsy T. Mink Pack, was trying to look at how to encourage young women because they're usually interested in, they're sort of like uh, Emily's List for Hawaii, how to encourage young women to get engaged in the process, to run and to teach them to run and to, to support them and so forth. So I, I think that's really wonderful and I think that's part of the answer. I would say too, Donald Trump is the President of the United okay. States. I don't know if anybody <laughs> saw that coming three years ago. Uh, a senator from Vermont was almost the Democratic nominee, and he's not even a registered Democrat. We are, we are in an age of outsiders. And as much as we might bemoan that politics is all run by insiders, um, that is not the time that we are in. And for anyone to sit for a second and say, well, I've got no chance because I don't know so-and-so, I, you know... Sometimes doing things and running for office is not about winning, it's about making a case. I, I ran for Secretary of State in California in 2014. I ran as a Republican, which is why I'm now the Dean of Pepperdine School of Public Policy. <laughs> and one of the things I learned from that experience, never having run for any office before I ran statewide in California, was that a political campaign is the most unique political argument platform there is. That unless and until you step into that arena, not stand outside of it, but unless you put that name on that ballot, the media coverage and the chances to make your argument, even in a losing cause, if you're passionate about a certain set of issues, whether it's getting your garbage picked up or we shouldn't be in a certain place fighting a war overseas, that should animate you. 
Uh, and we are, a, we are a history as a country of people who are willing to do that. And I really do believe we're now in a moment that really is where voters are more open to outsiders than ever before. Now, we may learn in due course that we shouldn't be as open to outsiders, okay? But at the same time, I think it, it really is a time when the search for authenticity, that's, that's why Bernie Sanders made it as far as he did. It's he's, he's seen as authentic. And the voters are looking for authentic candidates. Well, authentic candidates are usually outsiders that are very passionate and know something about a particular set of issues. And I think now is a great time to be making that argument. I make, it to make the argument to my students at the policy school all the time. Run for office. Don't just think about working in government or working in the nonprofit sector. Get into the arena and do it if you're passionate about those issues because you can't lose if you're running on a set of issues that you care deeply about because that's the only way you can make that argument public. Randy, as you look out on the, on the horizon of you know, the, the, all, the, all the past elections that you've seen and the, and the future ones possibly to come, do you, do you see some of that momentum bubbling up um, in the community in terms of the, the younger folks coming on the slate? Oh, definitely. I think you'll see in 2018 a, a marked increase in the number of younger people that are going to choose to run. Uh, they will face some of the challenges because we, we still have systemic uh, obstacles, such as what Gary was talking about, because it still takes money. Uh, it, you need some kind of employment to take to, or, or some kind of source of money to be spending your weeks walking through the neighborhood talking to people because otherwise you don't eat. So there are some practical impediments to, to, for some of these individuals to run, but I think more and more... Uh, of these younger people are seeing that the only way to make change is to be part of the system and not be uh, a critic from the outside. And so I'm hopeful. And, and hope to join in there with some of the seasoned folks who may be willing to have the courage to, to put forth those bills that would change the very structure that's protecting their existing jobs too, right? I, I mean, to, to systematically change some of those fundamental things would be uh, to write yourself out in some cases. So time will tell to see if there's any changes like that um, on, on the horizon. Thank you.